0: Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. If this is, whoa, hello, that came on hot. Are we all right here? Was that me? Because I heard myself. Well, welcome, welcome. Uh, If this is your first time, we're really glad you're here. Uh, If you're a member, we're really glad you're here as well. Before we dive into the text, I want to make a quick announcement as we come to the end of our First full year of Sunday gatherings as a church, we are seeking to raise a little bit extra funds. And so if this is your church home, we wanna encourage you uh, to consider giving at the end of the year here. Uh, Normal for a lot of nonprofits and ministries, we are uh, facing a little bit of a deficit uh, relative to our budget at the end of the year. So over the next few weeks leading up to the end of the year, December 31st, uh, our goal is to raise an additional $10,000 above our normal giving. Uh, So we have a a deficit to budget of about $5,000, and then we are seeking to go into the next year with a little bit more uh, strength. There's a lot in 2020 that I'm really, really excited about that your giving is going to go towards. Uh, We're actually bringing on a pastoral resident, a young guy who is going to be studying with us, serving with us, and we're going to be giving him a little bit of funding. Uh, And then we are making some changes and improvements in kids and in worship, and so we're going to talk... More about that at our celebration dinner. If you've uh, been here for one of those, you know it's literally the best thing ever. We're going to do that at the end of January. It's a ton of fun. We go out to eat, church pays for it. It's a blast. We review things from the year before, look forward to the year ahead. And so we'll be sharing more at that time. But we want to encourage you, if you're able, to consider giving a little bit extra at this time to, to help with the strength and stability of the church. And so no big campaign, we're not putting like a thermometer on stage with where we're at. This is just the we need 10 grand uh, campaign. So we would love to have you consider, <laughs> consider that. Um, and if you're unable to contribute, of course, please just join us in, in praying, continue praying for the, the growth and stability of, of uh, this young work of God that God is uh, doing so powerfully in our midst. So, all right, transition to message. In my mind, I had a sentence that was gonna transition, but I'll just say the word transition. Uh, As many of you know, we lived in uh, Louisville, Kentucky for seven years before returning home here to Missouri, and often I've had people in town here say, oh, Kentucky, Uh, have you been to the Creation Museum? Uh, Creation Museum, if you've not heard of it, is a $35 million Disney-like experience museum uh, set in farmland in northern Kentucky. Uh, It has another newer project called Noah's Ark Experience which is a one hundred and twenty million dollar life-size ark complete with a zoo and zip lines. And so you can imagine that these uh, these museums, these experiences represent a little bit of a cultural divide, a sort of a case study in people who view the same topic from very different positions. And in fact it's a case study in how uh, believers and non-believers look at one another and, and often just don't even understand each other at all. On the one hand you have the advocates of the Creation Museum who are saying we believe and we think we can prove that the earth is 6,000 years old. Uh, We believe we can prove that the scriptures line up everything that has happened without significant gaps. We believe we can prove that dinosaurs walked on the earth maybe 4,000 years ago before going extinct in biblical times. And so for the Creation Museum advocates, almost any other viewpoint is, is completely unbiblical. And, and for uh, this perspective, any, any other reading of Genesis uh, is, a, is a lowering of what God has said to his people. Now, you can imagine that non-believers have a field day with this sort of stuff. In fact, the Noah's Ark experience uh, is currently suing their insurance company for rain damage. Of all things, you can't make this up. Rain damage, they're seeking a million dollars in insurance recovery because of rain damage to the ark itself. <laughs> uh, but even within, within our own churches, within our own ministries, within Christianity, there's, there's an incredible divide in how we look at Genesis 1 and 2, how we think about creation. And often this is one of those places where different tribes and different denominations and different traditions begin to ridicule one another, look down on one another, either because they, they hold this view of a very young earth and they think that any other interpretation is absolutely unbiblical, or because they hold uh, a different view of an older earth and believe that the people who go to the creation museum are simply unintelligent. And so this is a place where we as, as believers, I believe, need to have far more unity and far more charity within the church, but it also gives us an opportunity among those outside the church to clarify what Christianity really believes, really teaches, and what it holds to be essential, and what Uh, is actually more of a secondary matter. And so the question we're looking at this morning, this is the last week in this series, Questioning Christianity, where we've been taking questions from our members, from people in the community. We've gotten uh, 40, maybe 50 questions. We're continuing to get uh, questions. Um, We're shutting it down officially as of this weekend. I'm sorry, you can still ask your questions, but it won't be through the same form on the website. But we've got all these incredible questions, and we've formed eight sermons out of these questions, and so this week we're looking at the question, has science disproved Christianity? And so we have these two options that seem like polar opposites. On one hand, we have total atheism, which is represented by some of the famous atheists like Richard Dawkins, who has famously said, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we would expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless, indifference. And then on the other hand, we have people who often treat the Bible like more of a science textbook than the revelation of God and his history of redemption. And they think that all there is left is to expose people to the truth of, of creation or to dinosaurs, and then there is an airtight case for Christianity. I want to suggest that neither of these approaches are often that helpful. Believing that we have an airtight Christianity is is not necessary to our faith. I think we see Christ over and over pointing us to faith and to trust in him as opposed to creating an airtight case for Christianity. Instead, we have an airtight person. We have Jesus Christ who himself is perfect. And so today we're going to try to hold some different views with, with charity. We're going to seek to find some unity on this topic and so first of all we're going to look at this question has science disproved christianity um, but we're actually going to end the sermon with some of the other questions that we've received that we haven't had time to s- to spend an entire sermon on so we're going to look at a few of those questions and then sort of give some final reflections for the road all right all right transition first of all has science disproved christianity and to begin I want to say no I don't think science has disproved christianity In fact, I don't even think there's a significant conflict between science and Christianity, Christian belief. For most of Christian history, there has not been a concern over conflict between Christianity and science or any other field of study. In fact, theology originally was considered one of the sciences alongside biology and chemistry and physics. Universities would have these departments and these experts in theology and and the natural sciences. There was a lot of overlap between them. Many of our our great scientists from the past generations were believers. Galileo, Isaac Newton, uh, Gregor Mendel, who was one of my favorites, uh, founder of genetics, he was a monk. Uh, Blaise Pascal, these were all people who loved the Lord and and were driven by their faith in God to embrace science and a a life of discovery in his world. It was in the 20th century when, when higher education became highly secularized that we actually got this view of evolution not just as a way of explaining biological process but as a grand overarching theory of everything and I think that's where the conflict really comes in if we believe that evolution is a grand theory of everything that explains everything that puts everything into place then there's a great divide between science and between Christianity. And that's a relatively new argument that evolution can be seen as a grand theory of everything. And I think that that's one as Christians that we can reject, and we can reject not only on spiritual grounds but on, on grounds of science because that is going way beyond the, the realm of biology to assume that natural selection or survival of the fittest can tell us about who we are, why we're here, what, what we must do to find joy and happiness. Those are way beyond the scope of biology. Today, many of the world's top scientists don't see a problem between their Christian faith and their studies. And in fact, uh, in all of these departments, biology, chemistry, physics, the rate of believers in these sciences are actually on the rise and have been for about 30 or 40 years. For me personally, at the University of Missouri, and this was a while ago, but I was a microbiology major. That was my undergraduate degree. And uh, as I said, I graduated 14-some years ago. Yes, there were microscopes at that time. We were doing real science even back then. Um, But what was fascinating to me as a microbiology student was the way that I could see God's incredibly intricate, wonderfully ordered universe. I could see it in in looking at bacteria under a microscope, the way that we can figure out how to respond to the spread of viruses in, in communities. I loved hearing stories of people who had 30-foot long tapeworms pulled from their intestines. I had an entire class involved with uh, tapeworms. It was fascinating and horrifying and there's a lot of foods I don't eat anymore. I did a cancer research fellowship where this institute, Sowers Institute, a great place, primarily was working with embryonic stem cells. And I remember talking to my faculty mentor saying, I don't think I feel comfortable doing research with embryonic stem cells and he said, no problem, we'll have you working with hematopoietic stem cells, which come from, the, from blood. And so there was no major conflict at any point in my faith, in science, and the research that I did, the labs that I worked at at Mizzou, after I graduated. In every lab that I was in, there were Bible-believing Christians. And I was never told why I didn't accept grand, you know, this grand theory of everything that is evolution. And so what does the Bible teach? What does it teach about creation? What does it teach about the way God has revealed himself? I love the beauty and the majesty of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We see God creating the world personally and directly. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And I love the way Moses, the, the author of Genesis, has, has given us the creation account, the, the beauty and the majesty that he shows in God's creative design. The way we see this, this creator who looks on his creation with happiness, with delight, with satisfaction, when he says that it's, it's good. When he creates order out of chaos and and something out of nothing, we see our, our Father's heart for goodness, for his own glory, for our good. The way that he brings about an earth in a way that it can sustain such incredible life. Psalm 19, our passage, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. And I think of the, I don't know if anybody was up for the sunrise this morning. It was like maybe 10 minutes long. Where the entire sky was orange and pink, and then in a moment it was gone and everything was just overcast in grey again. But I look at that and I and I see the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. The sunrise pours forth speech about God. Night after night they reveal knowledge. The sunset, a Missouri sunset is one of the most incredible things, at least it lasts a little bit more than ten minutes the stars, the eclipses, everything, they reveal knowledge about God. And so the scriptures give us two forms of revelation, two ways that God reveals himself. And we call this general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is what God has revealed to to all people, what can be known and appreciated by all people, the sunrise, the sunset, mountains and oceans, blue whales, bald eagles, Everybody has access to this knowledge of our universe. God has revealed himself in these things to all people. That's general revelation. Special revelation is the revelation that's given to God's people, given through his word, the scriptures, given through prayer, given through personal experience. Special revelation is given to the church, to brothers and sisters in Christ, to God's people so that we would know him even better. And so Christian theology has always taught that whenever there seems to be a conflict between general revelation and special revelation, we begin not with the general, but we begin with the special revelation. We begin with God's word and try to understand general revelation from God's word. And so that means taking God's word as it is, taking God's word as his authoritative, his good and true word. And yet at the same time if there's an area where special revelation is not incredibly clear where God hasn't given us all the answers then we should have no problem or special revelation hasn't given us all the answers we should have no problem looking to general revelation and helping us understand the world that God has created. And so on this point the scriptures I believe aren't completely 100% airtight clear on something like the the age of the earth the the days of creation. And if that's true, that means that we hold our views with charity. And I want to fairly quickly walk through the three main views of creation and what it looks like to hold them in the church. And remember, I would say, again, that Genesis is not a science book. It's a book that opens up to us the significance of our lives, why we're here, how we came to be, what it looks like to live a faithful life before God. And so the first major view in the church is what we call the young earth View And this is based on a straightforward reading of Genesis, a, a view of the six days of creation as 24-hour literal days. And if this is true, and this is the assumption, then what most young earth people can do is simply look at the events of the Bible and work backwards and say that the earth is about 6,000 years old. And you might say, well, how is this even possible if somebody doesn't believe or doesn't understand the young earth perspective? And it's based on an idea that the earth was created mature. And I think this makes sense, and this, this uh, could certainly be that God created an earth that was mature. If you were there on the first day of creation in the Garden of Eden, do you think the trees were like little seeds in the ground, or were they fully mature, 100-foot tall trees? I would assume that they're fully mature trees. This is a beautiful, lush garden that God put man and woman in. At the same time, if you dug up the soil, soil by definition has nutrients that are from dead animals and previous plants that were there. And so if you dug up soil on the first day of creation, would there not be some evidence of life that has come beforehand? And so that's sort of the argument of the young young earth uh, side, the theorists. Now, I think where this can get into trouble is by saying that this is absolutely no question what the Bible says. I think if you say, case closed, this is special revelation, we don't need to look at general revelation whatsoever. Any look at general revelation is being unbiblical, I think that's taking a view one step too far, and I I don't think that's necessary. At the same time, I don't think it's necessary to hold an old earth perspective, but here's sort of the old earth theory, which is the other main and the second view of creation. And so in this view, many Christians observe that the word day in Genesis 1, can also be translated as a period of time. You may have heard this. The word day in Hebrew can be used as, as a period, as, as an age. In the same way, those who hold the old earth view uh, might say that the, there was an enormous amount of time between the first few verses of Genesis and then the six days that come after it. So in other words, God created the heavens and the earth, and then there was a long period of time before the six days, before those, those verses that give the order of creation, so that the six days were kind of God's ordering and preparing of, of an earth that could have been very old for humans to live on. Now, they're not rejecting the scriptures, they're not rejecting special revelation, but this is a way for people who hold to an old earth to better make sense of general revelation. Now, I think it's important that most people realize or most people hold sort of inherent or, or what we call tacit beliefs on this topic and really any other topic of faith. We talked about this the first week with proof. Do we need an airtight proof for Christianity or do our doubts actually give us structure to our faith or Are our doubts actually a good and a positive thing that lead us to trust in God and in his word? And I think a lot of people are going to be naturally drawn to either the young earth perspective or to the old earth perspective because of their childhood, because of their church tradition. And I think that's, that's fine and good, but it's important to realize that we often have these underlying beliefs. And so all this leads me to the third view, which is the view that I personally hold, and I'm going to drink water at a suspension because I'm thirsty. And I call this view, I'm not sure, and I wasn't there. So, I honestly don't know. I I really don't have a major take between the old earth and the young earth. And I think this is okay to be in a place where on this topic we, we may not have a really firm view. If you do have a really firm view on this, I think that's totally fine. I think both of these views are within Christian orthodoxy, absolutely. And it's more about how we hold this particular doctrine the Leviathan in, in Job, was it a dinosaur, was it a, you know, was it a um, manatee, was it an alligator, I, an elephant, I don't know, you know. I would love for there to be way more certainty in the, scripture, the scriptures than there often is. And if you say, well, I thought you've been saying throughout this whole series that we need to be firm in our faith, we need to stand on God's word, we need to let it uh, dictate everything that we do, we need to be able to hold to the truth even if it's unpopular. And I would say absolutely, and I think there are a lot of places where the scriptures are far clearer than we might even want them to be, and I think last week was evidence of that. And so there are places where the scriptures are incredibly clear and where we need to hold things with passion and with conviction, and there are places I think we need to admit the scriptures aren't quite as clear as we would want them to be. And on those topics, I think we need to hold the doctrines with charity and with humility. I think the correct posture is to hold conviction with humility. And that's been the goal in this series. That's the goal for us every week. In fact, the very last line of our statement of faith is that we hold these doctrines in conviction with humility. We're a people of faith, we're a people of God's Word. We love the Scriptures, we love studying church history, or at least I do, and a lot of people do. We love the fact that God has spoken to us through his word, that he's given us this incredible scripture, that he's given us an, an awareness of a world that's good and right and ordered. And yet at the same time, I don't think it's, it's ungodly to admit we can have doubts. That our doubts can drive us to a deeper appreciation and a deeper love for God and his word. I think we can look around at the other believers and the other traditions and, and uh, other denominations and recognize that this is actually a good gift. In an area where we have disagreement within the church, that's given by God, I believe, to, to help us work towards unity. Now, God knows infinitely more about science than we do. God could have made everything extremely clear on every single topic in his word. It might be a larger Bible than it is. But instead, I believe there are areas where he hasn't given us total certainty within the faith so that we can, get, we can learn to get along with people who hold different views than us. I don't know if there's a way to develop humility and to develop unity between churches if there isn't some gray area given by the Lord so that we can develop patience and love within the church. Now, we could spend way more time on this. Uh, You know, one of the questions we've gotten was on dinosaurs, and in the young earth view, dinosaurs are very important to the view. The the idea that dinosaurs were far more recent than natural... um, revelation seems to suggest. And so within the young earth view, dinosaurs give credence to uh, a very young earth, and this is a way of of, um, even evangelism, that people can show dinosaurs were on the earth at this point, which means creation started at this point, which means the Bible's relevant and accurate, which means you should put your faith in Christ. And I think if you hold that, that's fine. Personally, I don't know that the natural revelation can help me make sense of that. And so on the question of dinosaurs, again, I don't have a great answer, I don't really know. I don't know if it's possible to have an airtight case for when dinosaurs were around and when they were extinct. Although I love the question, I love doing a couple hours of research on it. It's all sorts of stuff out there on the internet, as you would imagine. We could spend way more time on this, but I do wanna speak to a few other questions we've gotten in the past few weeks. And so I'll say if you've submitted a question online, I'm so thankful. We got so many incredible questions. We've hit on a lot of them throughout this series but there are a few more that I wanted to speak to this morning before we conclude the series. And so this is sort of emptying the Trinity inbox, the Trinity mailbag. I thought about bringing a literal mailbag with me and, like, opening an envelope and reading it, but then I remember I'm not really that into props, and it'd probably be a little bit cheesy. So, all right, first question. Does a Christian who commits suicide go to hell? Uh, I was really happy uh, to receive this question, uh, and I believe that, that uh, no, a Christian who commits suicide does not go to hell but goes to be with the Lord immediately and for all eternity. I think a Christian who commits suicide is a Christian who is like anybody else. Anybody who commits suicide is, is almost certainly struggling with, with uh, the heaviness of life, with uh, a mental illness. Anyone who, who takes their own life is struggling in such a profound way that this becomes an appealing option. And I think we have to give a lot of space as Christians for the reality of this broken world, that, that even a believer could struggle with mental illness to the point where he or she would want to take his own life. And so if a believer commits suicide, and what the church is traditionally taught, even though you'll see some, some major Catholic statements that are different, if somebody commits suicide but they're a believer, they go to be with the Lord just like anybody else, regardless of, of the method of death. I think the fact that we see Samson commit suicide in the Old Testament and then get listed in Hebrews 11 as one of the heroes of the faith, I think that gives evidence to the fact that this is not a, you know, a sin that can't be covered. We're saved not by the fact that we have zero unrepentant sins when we die. I don't know if anybody has zero unrepentant sins when they die. But the fact that Jesus' blood is enough to cover all of our sins. What we believe as, as Christians is that we are made one with Christ through faith in him, and that everything that's true about Christ now covers everything that's true of us. And there aren't like degrees of, of sinfulness and failure, failureness in God's eyes. If we are one with Christ, then when God looks at us, he sees Christ himself. And so regardless of how our life ends, and I'm not in any way in support of suicide, I, I absolutely do not think it's, it's a, a good idea ever, but I want to recognize that somebody is struggling in a significant way and they can still go to be with the Lord absolutely if, if they are a person of faith. Mental health is something that we've talked about on a few occasions here and it's one of our passions as a church family. I've uh, been open on several occasions with my own long struggle with depression. Uh, for nearly 20 years I've wrestled with depression and I've found a lot of encouragement, a lot of support in, in this church and in the church as a whole in the community of faith, in in Christian counseling and therapy and medication. I think we as a church don't need to be afraid of mental illness, but we can say that the church is a great resource for those looking to be stronger in their mental health. And just like I I believe that I have a biological proclivity to depression and other people have proclivities towards anxiety and other things, I believe that the church is a gift from the Lord to help us support and encourage one another. And so this is a place where if you are having suicidal thoughts, if you are struggling with depression or anxiety, this is a safe place to bring those things. You can bring them to your friends without fear of judgment. You can bring them to me and Casey and the other leaders of the church without fear of judgment. And so that's the first question. Second question, why does God seem so violent in the Old Testament? We see so much violence in the Old Testament. Why do we see uh, uh, it seems that God himself is violent. Now, first of all, I would say there is an enormous amount of violence in the Old Testament that God condemns and rejects, and this is not God-ordained violence. Most of the violence in the Old Testament is not God bringing it about, but it's a broken world revolting against God. And so even David, one of the great figures of the Old Testament, he's not allowed to build the temple in Jerusalem because God says that his reign was marked by too much violence and too much bloodshed. And yet at the same time, I think we have to recognize that there are passages where God actually commands some level of violence. We can think about the life of David when he goes and he he intercedes on behalf of Israel and he asks the Lord, "Should should we attack the Philistines? And so their enemies, the Philistines, are getting ready to attack them. David goes before the Lord and he says, should we turn and should we directly attack the Philistines? And God says in several instances, no, don't do that actually go around this mountain and hit them from the side and you'll wipe them all out. It's like, whoa, God's doing like war strategy in the Old Testament. And we can look at that and think, how in the world could God do that? I think what we need to understand in the perspective of redemptive history, what God's been doing from beginning to end. In the Old Testament, Israel was God's special people. They were the kingdom of God there was no salvation outside Israel for most of the Old Testament. The kingdom of God was Israel, and so anybody outside of Israel, they were enemies of God. We see in a few places that God spreads his salvation outside Israel, but for the most part, everybody outside of Israel in the Old Testament is an enemy to Israel and to God. Now, in Christ's life and his his birth and his death and his resurrection that kingdom opened up the floodgates were opened wide so that every tongue tribe and nation now is a member of God's kingdom anyone and everyone who believes can be one with Christ there is no division there are no enemies of Christianity and yet in the Old Testament God is often providing for protecting his people Israel and so as Christians I think we can actually be incredibly encouraged by this encouraged by a God who will defend us a God who will protect us a God who is our rock and our strength and our refuge and yet the battle now is is not physical it's not military it's spiritual the New Testament says in Ephesians 6 our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms Therefore, put on the full armor of God. Notice that it doesn't say fight. You notice that it doesn't say put on the armor and then charge the gates of hell. It says, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. A lot of the physical realities of the Old Testament continue today, but it's spiritual realities. We are threatened on all sides by spiritual forces of darkness. And yet we have a God who understands understands this. He's not afraid of it. He's willing to fight on our behalf. All we have to do is stand. Our God will fight for us. Now, third and final question, and I love this one. What makes Christianity different and does it really matter in the end? What makes Christianity different and does it really matter in the end? I think, in a way, this entire series has been a, an attempt to answer that two parted question Does Christianity, is it any different and does it really matter? First of all, is it different? I would say there is one really clear way where Christianity is different from every other religion, and that's Jesus. Every religion, of course, has its version of God it's it's prophets it's religious leaders and yet Jesus is 100% totally different no other version of God in any other religion no other prophet no other great leader has ever come down from heaven and lived for his people and suffered for them and died every other religion has this in common it's man trying to climb his way to God And in Christianity, God comes down to man. God, the Son leaves the the beauties and the glories of the heavens to enter our broken and corrupt world on our behalf, not because we invited Him, not because we were impressive, not even the church, not not even Israel. Jesus came down because we were dead and lost in our sin. There is no grace like this. There's no Savior like this in any other religion. And if you ask, what, what difference does it actually make in our lives? I recognize that our cultural moment makes genuine faith pretty difficult. That we can look out at our world that, that seems so secular, so, so disconnected from God, a world where you can only defend what you see in a, in a natural way, what, you know, what can you measure, what can you prove. How do you have faith in a, in a culture like this? And it seems maybe even in this series that you might say, well, okay, I believe the core, you know, tenets of Christianity, and I want to believe those, and I want to hold to those, but I also don't want to lose all the respect of my friends. I don't want to give up on the world. And so I'm just going to live somewhere in the middle. And at times, that's tempting for all of us to just see some form of a middle ground. I can believe in Christianity, but I'm not going to go all in. Many of you have probably heard from your own parents or other people you love and trust. I understand that you're a Christian, but just don't get carried away. And I understand the appeal of this, but I also think it's the worst possible position. It's better to live for something than die for nothing. That's Rambo, if you remember the line, but I think it's appropriate. If we're not living for anything, if we're living for nothing then we're we're not living at all. Life's not worth living if there's nothing you're willing to die for. The two best options are being all out or all in. I really don't think you can read the scriptures. You can look at the life of Jesus, what he offers us in salvation, the vision of the new heavens and new earth that's held out for us, and then simply have a mild response to it. I think you either need to just completely reject it, And to say that at the bottom of the universe, there is no difference, there's no design, there's no good or evil, it's just pitiless indifference. Or to say, if this is true, this means I need to go all in. I need to to give my life entirely and completely to Christ. The Christian vision of redemption is far bigger than we realize. And this is where I want to end this series and how I want to tie everything together together to recognize that this is so different from every other world religion, this is so different than a secular worldview. It's not just the fact that Christianity holds forth an afterlife, although it does. It's not just that Christianity talks about forgiveness of sins and and a ticket to heaven, even though that's a huge part of it. The Christian vision actually gives us a vision of renewal and of wholeness and of justice and peace on this very earth. Christianity is completely alone in showing that this very earth can be renewed and restored by God. Every other religion is some kind of escape from reality, an escape from the brokenness of our lives, the brokenness of our bodies, some, some you know, transition into a spiritual trans- transcendent reality where we're just free from all this suffering. And yet Christianity is actually a transformation of the brokenness, not an escape from it a transformation of everything that's wrong, a transformation of everything that's corrupt. The resurrection shows us that God cares for us both body and soul. A new heavens and a new earth shows that he cares for our literal world. And there was a great quote that I came across from uh, a theologian from Sri Lanka, Vinoth Ramachandra. He says, All other religions present salvation as a form of liberation from ordinary humanness, an escape from the, the shackles of embodiment. But here's what he says. Biblical salvation lies not in escape from this world, but in a transformation of this world. You will not find hope for the world in any of the religious systems or philosophies of humankind. The biblical vision is unique. That is why when some say there is no, that there is salvation in other faiths, I ask them, what salvation are you talking about? No faith holds out a promise of eternal salvation for the world, the ordinary world that the cross and resurrection of Jesus do. The Christian vision of redemption is far bigger than I think any of us even realize. It's a cosmic redemption, a final restoration of our bodies, our souls, our world. And if that's true, then that changes how we live here and now. If we know that this is the end, that our end is not a disembodied, disconnected reality, but that it's a, it's a flesh and blood, planet earth reality in community with one another and the people of faith, that changes the way we do life here and now. That helps us see from the moment of the resurrection and the empty tomb, looking forward to the new heavens and new earth, that eternal life has already begun. The great change happens not when we die, but the great change happens at the moment of salvation. We enter into this eternal kind of life. And that means that the life that Jesus lived, it's a pattern for us to live as we join him in bringing about the redemption and renewal of this very world. And so like Jesus, we can seek to heal those who are hurting and and restore those who are lost. Because in the end, all all pain has been removed. All suffering has gone away. Every tear from every eye has been wiped away. And in Christ, we can actually play a role in this redemption. In fact, Christ is still doing his ministry on earth, but he's doing it through the church, full of his Holy Spirit. We can be quick to forgive like Christ and restore those who have hurt us or others. Like Jesus, we can invite the lonely and lost into community, this diverse and sometimes strange people of God we can expect suffering because we look at the cross and see that even Jesus suffered greatly and yet we look to the empty tomb we look to the new heavens and the new earth and we see a final victory that that gives order and clarity to everything we do now in life we live backwards from this incredible ending and so what makes Christianity different In Jesus' own words, he says, I have come to give you life and life to the full. Let's pray.